Well, good morning, venue crowd. Wow. You need more coffee? What, is Luann in here? Can you go reopen the coffee shop? Come on, y'all. Is that the best you got? Good morning. Much better. Excited to be with you this morning now that you're awake. Hey, someone asked me this last week, was I glad to uh, be finished with the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, evidently, I hadn't quite read ahead because we're not quite finished slogging through the cesspool. You know, God has not hidden the incredible depravity of man's fallenness. We, we can't look at the heroes of Scripture and say, well, they're so far beyond me. All men are fallen. And here in Genesis especially, we, we see that. And I'll admit, looking at the filth is, is no fun. It's offensive. It's obnoxious to look at. But there's some lessons to be learned here and some minefields that we can certainly avoid. I'm not going to read. We didn't finish chapter 19 last week. I'm not going to read verses 30 through 38. It's a short section, so you can, uh, you can just follow along with me. You see in verse 30, the only three survivors of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah were Lot and his two daughters, and they went to Zoar as they had asked permission to do. But you see in verse 30, now that Lot is leaving Zoar, Scripture doesn't tell us how long they were there in Zoar, exactly uh, why Lot was afraid to live there. We, we can surmise his thoughts. Zoar was a city slated for destruction along with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was all the cities of the plain that were supposed to be destroyed. So God had planned to destroy Zoar, which tells us it had the same level of wickedness as, as Sodom and Gomorrah did. But he spared it because Lot asked to go there. But maybe now Lot's come to his senses and realized, you know, it's probably not a good idea to be closely associated with such obnoxiously wicked people. If you remember, Lot had been instructed to flee to the hills, not to move to Zoar. And God was gracious with Lot, as we saw last week. If you or I had been God, we probably would have inflicted some pretty uh, serious and immediate punishment on Lot. First of all, because he's reluctant to obey and to leave Sodom. And then secondly, because he wanted to have it his own way. He didn't want to go to the hills. He wanted to go to Zoar. And what you see now in, in, in Lot's life is because he has failed to follow the Lord, he's developed a severe case of anxiety. In fact, Lot is, is overcome with anxiety. And I mention that to say this to you, if you're following the Lord, if you're walking with him, if you're walking with Jesus, you won't be overcome by anxiety. You may, you may have some moments of, of fear, some moments of, of anxiousness, but you won't live in anxiety because no matter the circumstances and situations you find yourself in, if you're walking with Jesus, he's got it. And what you see, what, what Lot has done, what you see is this, the plans that, that men make when they depart from the instruction of the Lord, those plans never prosper. They, they never work. They never work out. Why? Because those plans are typically made under the counsel of man, not the counsel of God. And the counsel of man is always going to be affected by worldly desires. So if we undertake anything without God's approval, it's basically under his curse. As I thought about that this week, I was reminded of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1. Judah, the southern kingdom, has been threatened by the kingdom of Assyria. And instead of seeking God, knowing God would be their protector, God would do battle for them, they went to make an alliance with Egypt. Listen to what God said to them about that. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1. Woe to them who begin a work 
not by the Spirit of the Lord, who take counsel but do not ask at his mouth. Plans of man never succeed. We need to be sure that we're going along with the plan of God and following and walking with Christ. Well, in, in verse 31, you see that Lot's daughters, Lot moved out of Zoar out of fear. His daughters also have some fears. That shouldn't be surprising. Remember that Lot was not walking closely with the Lord, so his family were even further from the Lord if they even knew the Lord. He's called a righteous man in the New Testament, but he certainly has not led his family in righteous living, and he certainly is not leaving a legacy of righteousness and faith through these, through these two daughters. Well, what are they fearful about? In the day and age in which Lot's daughters live, a woman had to have a, a husband or a brother or, or some male benefactor to protect and provide for her. Without a male benefactor, she was going to be in some pretty serious trouble. And, and his daughters are now living in a, in a cave with their reclusive father. And so they fear, well, we're never going to be married and we'll never have children. Now, those fears were exaggerated. There were plenty of places they could have gone besides Zoar, plenty of places they could have gone to find husbands. In fact, l- let me take you back for just a minute. When, when, when God initially told Lot, when the angel told Lot, when Sodom and Gomorrah were to be destroyed, the angel told Lot to flee to the hills where he was now living, he would have been running in a direction that would have brought him into another encounter with Abraham, his uncle. Look back, if you've got your Bibles open in chapter 20, look back in chapter 19, verses 27 and 28. The morning after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained down sulfur and and fire, the morning after, it says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is a place where he had asked the Lord if there was some way that Sodom could be spared because his nephew Lot was there. He stood before the Lord in the same place. Look what it says. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. You see, God told Lot to flee to the hills because that was going in the direction of Abraham. Abraham is in the hills. He's looking down on the plain where God has destroyed all these cities. And so God sent Lot to the hills for a reason. You remember we said last week, listen, if you're in a bad situation and God says go, you just go when and where he says to go. He's omniscient. He knows more than you do. He, he knows better. God sent Lot toward Abraham so that he could be protected and provided for. But he chose to go a different direction. Now, we don't know any more about Lot after chapter 19. These last eight verses are the last we hear about Lot. Evidently, he never went and sought out his uncle. And I have no doubt, knowing the gracious way that Abraham had treated Lot in the past, I have no doubt that he would have been gracious and compassionate to Lot once again. He would have taken him in and cared for him and provided for him. But probably Lot was too prideful to go to Abraham. And it's silly when you think about it because Abraham and everybody that lived in the area knew exactly what happened in Sodom. Lot was too prideful to go to his uncle. And and I want to say this morning, when you find yourself in the wilderness, when you find yourself in a place of difficulty, even because of your own actions and your own mistakes, it's easy to be prideful. It's easy to want to to cover that up and, and to hide. What you need is to come out of the cave. And to find a brother, and by brother I mean a a believer, a Christ follower who can help you turn from your sin and help you return to and be restored to the the path and the counsel and the plan of God. 
That's why James said in James 5.16, talking to believers, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you may be healed. Lot was too prideful to call out for help from Abraham. So we find here in, in chapter 19, verses 30 and 31, Lot and his daughters both have fears of what the future held. And, and the problem with fear is fear blinds you to reality. Fear causes your eyes to turn the wrong way and focus on the wrong thing. Lot's daughters were focused on what they lacked rather than focusing on the fact God had just miraculously saved them. God had provided for them. And if they would look to God and trust God, he would again provide for them and meet their needs in the future. But they were fearful. And fear is a bad counselor. It's a bad advisor. It leads to bad decisions. Lot's daughters did not seek the Lord. They didn't go to him with their concerns. Now, to be fair, as they're plotting ways to get what they want, as they're, they're seeking solutions they can produce rather than seeking the provision of God, to be fair, they never saw their father do that. They never learned that. And I would say to you in this room, if you're a parent or, or a grandparent, we need to understand that children must be taught to seek God. They must be taught when, when there's a problem, there's a difficulty, we, we go to God with that. They must be taught to make decisions based on the counsel of God. And, and really, taught's not the right word. They must be trained. You don't just tell them those things, you show them. You, you open up what you're dealing with, what you're going through, and how you're going to the Lord, and you let them experience seeking God with you. Lot's daughters never had that opportunity. And so instead of asking the Lord how to resolve their perceived issue, instead of seeking the counsel of the Lord, the, the two girls begin to think, well, how would our neighbors in Sodom have solved this problem? Remember, they grew up in a, in a faithless home, in a, in a godless culture, so they, they wouldn't acknowledge the Lord. They, they instead looked at the community they grew up in. It was a wicked community. Why would we expect the daughters of, of Sodom would, would, would think like or talk like or act any different than the Sodomites? That's what they were. By the time Lot's daughters were rescued from that cesspool, their minds were completely contaminated. That's why God warns us in Proverbs, it's too bad lots of daughters didn't have the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, we're warned, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And the word heart there doesn't mean, just mean heart, it means your mind and your emotions and your values. You have to protect your minds and, mind and emotions and, and spiritual values because what's in your heart, what's in your mind, what, what, what the values are in your life are going to flow out of your life. And we see what they were in, in Lot's daughters. So, so they decided they would provide for their own future. They would continue their family line by taking advantage of their father. Now, where in the world did that idea come from? Sodom was an incredibly wicked city. We mentioned last week there was all manner of sexual deviancy, not just homosexuality. And I can just imagine that Lot's daughters had friends in Sodom who had told them about some of their experiences with their family. And so the two girls ply their father with alcohol and they become pregnant by him. They have no respect for their father. They, they don't consider him worthy of honor, but he had not been a, a spiritual leader. He had not protected them from all the exposure to all manner of, of depravity. 
As I mentioned a few moments ago, we don't know anything else about Lot and about his life. We don't know how he reacted when he discovered what his daughters had done. We don't know what he thought about the birth of his grandsons, who were also his sons. We don't know anything about the remainder of his life. But at the end of the chapter, verse 37 tells us the son of the firstborn daughter was named Moab. His descendants were the Moabites. Verse 38, the younger daughter named her son Ben-Ami. His descendants were the Ammonites. Let me just tell you two things about these boys before we move on to chapter 20. In the Middle East, and and it's somewhat true here, but, but not as much as there. In the Middle East, names have great significance. When you're introduced to someone and you, you hear their name and you know the meaning of their name, that tells you a great deal about their family, about, about them. It's typically a conversation starter. For example, I'm sure when Isaac was introduced to people and they heard that his name meant laughter or he laughs, people would say, well, why, why did your parents name you that? The name Moab means from father. And the name Ben-Ami means son of my kinsman. It's almost as if the girls were flaunting their sin. This is my son. He's from my father. This is my son. He's from my kinsman. And what about the descendants of Lot's grandsons, the, the Moabites and the Ammonites? If you study the Old Testament at all, you know anything about history, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites were relentless enemies of Israel during the Exodus and during their conquest of the Promised Land. There is one bright spot that reminds us of God's faithfulness in spite of our failures, and that is this. One of the descendants of Moab was a woman named Ruth. You know the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Husband died, she was hanging out with her mother-in-law and made the decision, hanging out with Naomi, that she would forsake her country and her people. And Ruth ended up marrying Boaz, who was a descendant of Judah, who's of the line of Jesus. So even in man's gross failure, we, we see a bright spot of God's faithfulness. Well, chapter 20 brings us back to the main storyline. We kind of departed from the main storyline of Abraham last week. Now in chapter 20, we're going to go back to that main storyline, and that is Abraham's journey of faith. It's, it's a journey just like it is for you and me. We see in Abraham's life, he didn't get it all right. He wasn't perfect. We look at him as a hero and think, well, he's so far beyond what we could be, but we're looking at the journey of his life, and we're understanding that, that when, when you come to faith in Christ and you begin the journey you're not instantly mature. You're, you're nowhere near perfect. We all still struggle with, with impatience and greed and anger and jealousy and selfishness. We still complain and we still grumble sometimes and we still gossip. Coming to faith is the beginning. It's just the starting point of the process we call sanctification where we're made more and more like Christ. And that process continues for all of our days on this earth. Don't, don't look at the heroes of faith and think that they're better, they're more righteous than you. They, they struggle just the same. Think about Moses. Moses needed anger management classes. 
You remember he killed, he got angry and killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And on more than one occasion in that wilderness wandering, he lost his temper. Samson, Samson was greatly used by God to deal with the oppression of the Philistines, but Samson struggled with a lifelong lust and compulsion for other women. David. David's reputation, even though the scripture says he had a heart for God, his reputation was soiled by a sex scandal and he had several wives. You know the old saying, what one generation accepts, the next does to excess? Satan's son Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, and all of these relationships with foreign women led the nation of Israel into idolatry. These heroes were not perfect people. Well, we're talking about Abraham, the the father of our faith. He's declared righteous by God because of his faith, but we're going to see in chapter 20, again, is his struggle to rise above his temptations and his repeated sin. If you ask, what, what was, what was Abraham's, Abraham's Achilles heel? It was the fact that anytime he felt threatened, anytime he was fearful, he would lie. And that's what we see again in chapter 20. Look with me in chapter 20. Let's read verses 1 through 18. Abraham said, oh, excuse me, I'm on chapter, verse 11, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in the land of Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. We've heard that before, haven't we? She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you have taken, she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called all his servants. He told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and he healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
Now, Abraham is 100 years old now. Apparently, you never get too old to sin. After all he's been through and all the ways he has seen God provide, he still reacts out of fear. And, and, and I'm certainly not trying to go light on sin here, but understand, just like Abraham, sin is going to be a part of your life and mine. And Satan wants to use sin to discourage you and to tell you to just give up trying to live for the Lord because you're just not a perfect Christian. Abraham's been trying for years, and he's still entangled in sin. And what's important is not our sin, but our response to sin and our repentance from sin and our return to the Lord. Now, remember, for 25 years now, Abraham has had the opportunity to think about what happened in Egypt. 25 years prior, the, the, the same thing, he told the same half-truth that Sarah was his sister, and she was his half-sister. They did have the same father, but he never revealed she was his wife. And what happened in Egypt? Pharaoh heard that she was his sister, so she, he takes Sarah into his harem, and he suffers because of that decision. And, and when Pharaoh discovers the truth, God's man Abraham has to hear a lecture on integrity and morality from a godless monarch. And then he's kicked out of the land. Lesson learned? No. Here in chapter 20, Abraham's moving away from the oaks of Mamre. He's traveling south into the Negev. He ends up in, in Gerar. We, we don't know why he moved. Perhaps the stench from the plain of Jordan. Perhaps the stench of the sulfur and, and the fire was, and the scorched earth moved him. But for, for whatever reason, he had some good reason to make the move. And Abraham has made that move, and he's gone now to the Negev, which is a, a desolate desert area. He's moved there. He ends up in Gerar. Sarah's now 90. Evidently, the beauty that Pharaoh saw at 65 had not faded much, but you get this sense of deja vu in verse 2 as Abraham once again puts forth this lie that Sarah's his sister. And the result is, is same song, second verse. The king of Gerar, just like Pharaoh, takes Sarah into his, into his harem. Now, she's in no immediate danger because custom dictated, just as in Egypt, custom dictated that for a time, no man was to be near her as the king was preparing for a future wedding. Ladies, don't you wonder what Sarah thought about Abraham? That rascal. Every time he gets fearful, he puts her, this is twice now, he puts her in a potentially compromising and dangerous situation to save his own skin. So we see that Abraham is clearly susceptible to fear and, and to lying, and, and we all have certain sins that we're more susceptible to. That's why Paul in, in Hebrews 12 and 2 told us to throw off the sin that easily entangles. We all have certain temptations and certain sins that we get more easily entangled in. Do you know what sin you're susceptible to? You know what entangles you? And more importantly, do you have some friends or accountability partners that know what easily entangles you. People courageous enough to call you out. People not worried that you might get angry when you confront them with their sin. 
we saw that as the king slept, God appeared to him in a dream and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech didn't worship the, the one true God, but God still got his attention. And Abimelech knew, even though he didn't worship the one true God, he knew that he'd better honor that God with his actions. Abimelech's not a, not a believer, but he still had enough integrity to honor another man's marriage. And it's sad that even today, some non-believers have more integrity than believers. Abimelech is behaving more righteously than, than Abraham. And if you notice in verses 4 and 5, as Abimelech responds to the Lord, it's with reverence and concern. He says, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I, I have a clear conscience. And God says to Abimelech, I, I know that you're innocent. That's why I protected you. I didn't, I didn't let you lay a hand on her. And God tells him to return Sarah. And look at this, to let her husband, the prophet Abraham, pray for him. Here's Abraham. He's just reverted to an old sinful pattern, yet God calls him his prophet. You know that your standing before God, my standing before God is not based on anything we do. It is based solely on the faithfulness of God. Abraham was not a prophet because he was a good man in this picture instance, because he was acting righteously, because he was acting in integrity. He was a prophet before God because the standing before God was based on the faithfulness of God. And we see the same thing repeated again. Abimelech, the next morning, Abimelech, the godless king, lectures Abraham on morality and integrity. That's kind of embarrassing. You would hope by this point Abraham's got this figured out. Abimelech returns Sarah. He gives Abraham sheep, oxen, servants, a thousand pieces of silver. And unlike the king of Egypt who kicked him out of the country, he offers to let him settle anywhere in his kingdom. He can pick the best land. He can pick the choicest spot and he can, can settle there. Why does Abimelech do that? He looks, but, 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 he looks over behind, beyond the unworthiness of Abraham and honors his position and his God. And in response, we see that God heals his household so they're able to bear children. And, and I want to say again where we started is we're walking through Abraham's journey of faith. It's clear that Abraham's journey is our journey. We, we want to be people of faith, but we often fall short. The good news is, just like with Abraham, God does not give up on us. Unless we choose to continually, habitually walk in sin... And ignore the Father, when we are confronted with our sin, when we've gotten off course and God comes to us and his spirit deals with us, if we repent and we return, God doesn't give up on us. He's not finished with us, but he'll continue to, to use us. We've got to learn to depend on him. Our, our tendency is to figure it out on our own, to use our ingenuity instead of trusting the Lord. Well, Abraham's experience in Gerar has some good reminders for us. Even what we saw of Lot and his daughters in chapter 19 brings us to some good uh, points of application. Let me just mention three this morning as we're wrapping up. The first is this. We need to know our weaknesses. I, I don't mean we corporately. I mean individually. You need to know your weaknesses. You need to know your propensity to certain sins. And, and you have to structure your path to avoid those things. If I had a problem with alcohol, 
I wouldn't meet a friend for dinner or, or, or for meeting or for lunch in, in a bar. I've got to figure out what my propensities are, the temptations that, that frequently overwhelm me, and I've got to be sure that I structure my life where I'm staying away from those places, those things, even those people. There may be people that you don't need to be around because of certain propensities you have to give into temptation to sin. Somebody's got to have your number. You've got to have your number. The second thing I would say to us this morning, looking at, at Abraham and, and Lot, is we need to be careful that we don't overestimate our strength. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we look at, at what others are involved in and we think, well, that won't happen to me. I'm stronger than that. Several years ago, before I got into um, ministry in a local church, I worked for an organization and I would travel and lead discipleship conferences and travel and train leaders. And in, in all of that travel, there was certainly some risk. And I remember early on in that ministry, talking with several other uh, men who were on the staff of that organization, talking about the risk and talking about men we knew, and we were young at this point, but men we knew that we had looked up to that were no longer in ministry because they didn't have control of their passions. And one of the things we talked about was being in, in hotels when we traveled, and we said, you know, we've got to be careful not to put ourselves in the place of being tested. Even if it's an area that we don't think we're weak in, we don't want to put ourselves in a place of being tested. And so one of the principles we came up with was the minute we arrived at the hotel and checked in and walked in the door of the room, in the amount of time it took to drop our bags, we would also reach over and unplug the television. And I can't tell you how many, I don't know how they know this, but I can't tell you how many times I get a call from the front desk. Hey, we see that your television is not working. We're going to send maintenance up to fix that for you. But it was just a principle that we put in place because we didn't want to overestimate our strength. We didn't want to see if we had a propensity in that particular area of temptation and sin. Don't overestimate your strength. Finally, don't depend on your own understanding or your own abilities. Abraham had a very sharp mind. I mean, you look at the life of Abraham and all that he did and all that he accomplished. He was a very smart man, but the thing that tripped him up was he thought he could solve his problems rather than depend on God. And both times in Egypt and here in Gerar, both times his solution backfired and he ended up in trouble and embarrassment. Not only did Abraham embarrass himself, but you have to wonder what these people who didn't know and worship the true and living God, you had to wonder what they thought about Abraham's God. Listen, as, we, as we've studied through this yucky part of the journey of Abraham, we need to remember that you and I today live in a culture much like Sodom. Much like Sodom. There, there are so many parallels there. And, and the longer we're exposed to immorality, the more we lose sensitivity. And, and no one is immune to that. We need to pay attention to, to the subtle hints. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So something doesn't seem right, doesn't feel right. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I shouldn't be having this conversation. That's the Spirit of God working in us. We need to pay attention to that. And, and more than anything, we need to be on guard against passivity. It's very easy to think, hey, I can live in this culture and everything will be fine. And there's nothing I need to do. I don't need to worry. I don't need to have accountability. I don't, I don't need to have certain things in place for my family. 
men, I'm especially talking to you. We, we can't be passive. Look what happened to Lot's family because he did nothing when he was living in that godless immoral culture. And it didn't just end with the destruction of the city and the loss of his wife. Look this week at where his daughters ended up because Lot was a very passive man and he wasn't living righteously before his family. We can't let our guard down in the culture that we live in. Yes, we're going to fall short. We're going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. But as much as we can, we want to understand where we're weak, where we're likely to sin, where we're likely to be tempted, and we want to protect from that. And we want to understand that if we let our children and, and our wife, if, if we let them just kind of live in the culture, we don't speak into that and we don't put up defenses and put up barriers, there's a horrible price that will be paid, at least spiritually if not physically.